0: If you are not aware, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper today at the end of the service, and so make sure you have one of these. You can pick one up in the entryway if you have not already done so to be ready for that. And also, I like knowing ahead of time because it allows me to have the entire uh, time of our studying God's Word to prepare my own mind and heart for eating and drinking in remembrance of Christ. It is a big deal. It's no small thing uh, what the Lord has done for us and it's to be taken seriously and to, to be taken thankfully, but it helps me to get ready for that. We're going to be in the book of Acts this morning during our study of God's word. So if you want to find the New Testament, we call the book of Acts, you'll be all good to go. One famous church growth expert and leader in what's called the new apostolic reformation calls Acts God's training manual for modern Christians. God's training manual for modern Christians. Kind of has a ring of authority to it. I, I My knee-jerk reaction wants to say, well, that, that, sound, that that's right. And yet, is it? Is the book of Acts designed to be a training manual for us? in the 21st century on how to do church or evangelism or church growth. In other words, is it really advisable for us to try to get back to the good old days? You know, the early church like is talked about in the book of Acts. Is that something advisable? Is that really what we're trying to do? Is it what we're really trying to accomplish? And regardless of what one church growth expert might say... I think it's fair to say, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say, uh, that by and large, the men and women, the seasoned saints who've gone before us, who have been good Bible readers, have not come to that conclusion. And by and large, they would say, we don't care how many letters that guy has behind his name, or how popular he might be, um, that's actually not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to take the book of Acts and turn it into the 21st century manual for how to do church. And I want to give you some reasons why. Why, if we were to consult what I'm calling seasoned saints, good, faithful Bible readers, why uh, they wouldn't say something like that? Number one, I have four or five of these. We're not trying to get back to the good old days like in the book of Acts. Number one, because Acts is unique history. Acts is unique history. It's exciting, It's true. It's historic. I love to study the book of Acts. I love to preach in the book of Acts. But we have to remember what's recorded in the book of Acts is unique history. It's unique. It's, that's why I use the word like, words like extraordinary. It's not the norm. It's unique. It's different. It's distinct. Some Bible teachers have said, that's why we need to read the book of Acts and acknowledge it's describing what really happened. It's describing what really happened. But it is not prescribing what all Christians need to try to do until Christ returns. Notice there's a big difference. Is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? A lot of things in the Bible are descriptive a lot of things in the bible are prescriptive here's what all christians should do until christ returns the book of acts is unique history it's unique history let's be excited about learning let's let's find out what really happened but are we really called to emulate everything they did in the book of acts doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to be the case Another reason why I think seasoned saints would say we're not trying to get back to those good old days, number two, is Acts is transitional. It's transitional. We've already been seeing it. We've been seeing that there's this connection between the old covenant era, the old covenant world, the old covenant era, and now we're transitioning into what? Into the new covenant era. We're seeing a radical shift happening, but there's a transition happening, and you don't get the idea that it, you always want to be in a state of transition. No, we're going to transition. We're going to move from this to this, and we're seeing that happen in the book of Acts, and we're going to continue to see it as we study the book of Acts. I think it was, I didn't look it up a second time, but I think it was uh, the commentator and uh, seasoned saint, John R.W. Stott, some of you have benefited from John Stott's commentaries. He's written a whole bunch of commentaries. He went to heaven not too long ago. But I think it was Mr. Stott who said, if you don't understand the concept of transition when you're studying the book of Acts, you're going to be very, very confused. It's certainly the case. It's actually one of the key words to understand when you're interpreting and implying the book of Acts. It's, It's in transition. Things are transitioning. Even, even in the book of Acts itself, sometimes a certain thing happens when people get converted. And other times, it doesn't happen the same way. And other times, it doesn't happen the same way. There, there's something that's transitional about this book. It's an in-between time kind of book. We're moving from Old Covenant era, and we're transitioning into New Covenant era. And there's still a lot of dust in the air in the book of Acts. And the dust is going to settle I have another reason why we don't want to try to get back to the good old days. That's not why we're studying the book of Acts. Number three, Acts is, and I'm going to say this wrong and then correct it, Acts is immature. Well, I don't really mean that. But the church in the book of Acts is immature. It's a young church. This is a a new reality, a new phenomenon. Something extraordinary has happened. This isn't the norm. And so we have to get used to The new normal. What is it like being a new covenant believer? What changes and what doesn't change? Uh, What about this, the conflict we're going to face? And there's going to be this debate and that debate, even in the book of Acts. And so there are growing pains that they have to work through because they're not mature yet, but they're being matured. And by the time we're done, we're going to be able to see when we look back on all the 28 chapters, we're going to see that the church did a whole lot of maturing even during that transitional time. And we don't need to go back to being infants. We want to learn from the water that's under the bridge with the dust settling how we can live like more mature Christians. By the time we get to what's called in the Bible the epistles, the letters. So Peter wrote letters. Uh, Paul wrote letters some of of those epistles when when there's more maturity when there's more dust settled you you, you don't get the sense from Paul or Peter for example or John you know if we could just get back to the good old days like in the book of Acts you you don't get that sense they would affirm that it was all true and extraordinary and it's time to move forward with the prescriptive things that must be done things that must be done and then a Fourth reason why I think most believers who are seasoned Bible readers would say, let's not make it the 21st century manual for how to do things. Number four, Acts is not normative. It is not normative. It's not the norm. That's why I use words like extraordinary. It's not the ordinary. And I have a couple of, of examples to share with you. Don't get me wrong. It's all true. It's cool. It's exciting. I like to preach it. But it's not normative. We're going to see pretty soon in Acts 5. Ananias and who? Ananias and Sapphira. It's a pretty famous story. Ananias and Sapphira. And what do they do? They lie. They lie and what happens? (laughs) God strikes them dead. They're dead on the spot. Well, sometimes I wish God would still do that. <laughs> and other times when I'm looking in the mirror, I'm glad he doesn't do that. But it's not normative. It's not even normative in the book of Acts. It's something that happened. It's dramatic, but it's extraordinary. We think it's true, but it's not the norm at any time. And that's why we have four steps of church discipline. <laughs> not zero. God knows all things and He just kills them. Um, what a model that would be for doing church in the 21st century. Again, let's be impressed with what happened, but it's not the norm. Another example would be in Acts chapter 8. I'll just use two of these. And, and by the way, I've been looking for an opportunity to do this, kind of to talk about the nuts and bolts on how to interpret the book of acts but i didn't really want it to be the first sermon so i've just been waiting to sneak it in um, and today is kind of a cleanup day we need to clean up some things we didn't finish in acts chapter 2 and so you're you're getting how to interpret acts 101 uh, today uh hope you like it <laughs> we got to we got to think about how we're doing this another example would be in acts chapter 8 philip and the ethiopian eunuch It'll be interesting. Can't wait to get to it. But what, what happens? Philip evangelizes. The, um, the gospel comes. Uh, there's a baptism. And then the New American Standard translates it. And that's how I originally memorized it. That he's snatched away to a totally different place. It's Spielberg-esque, right? Like in, like in some kind of movie. Well, I, I, or I don't, there, maybe there was no sound. But snatched away, we don't see that, that happen again. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. It's not the norm. If it were the norm, right, why do Christians fly economy on Southwest? If it were the norm. What I find really strange is the crazy wild-eyed charismatics who have bad hermeneutics, bad interpretation, they're the ones that want you to send money to fund their jets. I thought you were making everything in the book of Acts normative. If it was all normative, you would just have a, you know, Jesse Duplantis snatching ministry. Um, That's what he would have. But he's not a truth teller. And so it's pick and choose. What we want to do is have integrity and say, this really happened. Let's be amazed that it happened, but it's not normative. It's a, it's extraordinary. This is a young church, extraordinary things happening for different reasons. We talk about some of those reasons. It's amazing, but we're not here to say this is our training manual for what we're doing in Omaha, Nebraska in the 21st century. There're there are similarities, same gospel, but there are differences. Well, maybe one final reason, I'll just add, and it's not a very spiritual one, um, one I'm borrowing from historian and theologian, Carl Truman. Um, we don't want to get back to the good old days of the book of Acts. You know why? Because they didn't have penicillin. They didn't laugh first hour either. Um, I just, you, you all just struck me as a brighter bunch. <laughs> I like it that Truman, uh, brings this up quite often because you know what? You might think it sounds great to go back to the good old days, but there are a lot of things about the good old days that weren't so good. And, uh, penicillin was invented in 1928. So, uh, we can be thankful for things like that. Okay. With that off my chest and off my mind, here's what we're going to do today. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Acts chapter two and we're going to look at verses 14 to 47. But we've already looked at a lot of those verses. So what we're going to do is review the sermon. I can talk really fast. And we're going to talk really fast, review the sermon. And then we're going to get to the end, to the new part. And the new part is people are converted when they hear the gospel. And they're converted and they don't just go about their business. They don't just say, oh, I've got to get out of hell free card. And my life isn't any different than it was before I was a Christian. Actually, there's a radical change that happens, the fruit of the gospel, if you will, in a person's life in the early church, we're going to look at that, that will be new, but the sermon part of Peter's sermon we need to do by way of review, I will pause and give you a couple new things that have to do with the ascension, um, but let's get ready to go quickly by way of review, I won't do this every week, um, but we're going to do it today, ready to go? Okay hope you are. Acts chapter 2, verse 14, it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2, and in the last days it shall be. So all different kinds, and he's connecting the dots. You want to know why you saw this extraordinary thing happen with people speaking in dialects that they hadn't known before, but were known dialects? This is that. This is what Joel talked about. This is the last days. We're connecting old covenant world with new covenant. We're having a fulfillment happening. This is what the Old Testament prophets have been prophesying about. This is what we've been waiting for, and it centers on Christ. How about verse 19? And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall I'll be saved verse twenty two says men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, you know, like accompanied special extraordinary things that sometimes sometimes infrequently sometimes happen in the old test on the Old Testament like that. Because something special and extraordinary is happening now, like dawning of a new era, new covenant era. That's why we have those signs and wonders like in those extraordinary times in the Old Testament. Keep Let's keep going in verse 22, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, this Jesus that everybody knows about, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs or pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he gives his argument why it's not possible. It's not possible because it's according to prophecy. It's not possible because this is what great King David said was going to happen, but not to him, to someone else who is none other than Christ the Lord. So let's keep going in verse 25. For David says concerning him, this is Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of Life. You have, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. If you're in the presence of God, you're not dead. You're, you're alive is the idea. You've given me life, flesh, dwelling. David talked about this very resurrection reality. So what is Peter doing in his sermon? He's, he's dot connecting, right? So Christianity isn't a out of left field, out of nowhere religion. No, it's a fulfillment religion, right? This was prophesied in the old to become reality in the new. This is according to plan. And who is center to the whole plan, central? It's Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. David, the lesser Messiah, the lesser Christ, and he was a great Christ and a great Messiah in the history of Israel. He was talking about someone ultimate. Not great, but ultimate, so even greater, right? Verse 29 says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, let's call him the great David, that he both died and was buried. Here's the punchline. And his tomb is with us to this day. He was great as a Messiah, anointed king, Christ. But he was talking about someone who would be raised, who would live forever. He was talking about, and he's going to connect these dots for us, Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. That's what's happening. Let's keep moving. I'm getting caught up in this, and we just want to re-preach it again. Oh, verse 30 says, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. This is 2 Samuel 7, Davidic covenant. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Then 32 says, this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. 33 says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Think ascension. If you're at the right hand of God and you're exalted, that's ascension. We learned about that in chapter 1, where Jesus ascends. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. All these extraordinary things happening, like the dialects, it's it's accompanying this reality. Then he goes on to say in verse 34, for David did not ascend, see it's ascension, chapter one, Jesus did, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If you're sitting at the right hand, you have ascended the throne. You are in your, to use old English, if you're seated, you're in your session, you're ruling and you're reigning until I make your enemies your footstool. How about verse 36? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's You can't fault it for, for, for lack of logic. You can't fault it for lack of biblical argumentation. This, Jesus, is the one. And if David, as sure as the nose on my face, Peter is saying, in effect, if David were standing next to me, he would say, amen. Because I'm quoting him. The one history's been waiting for is Jesus. The ascended Messiah. Messiah means king, anointed one. It's great stuff. Here's what I want to do just for a few minutes to give you some new stuff. So if you weren't here last week, we're bringing you up to speed. Um, If you were here last week, you may have been checking your emails. I don't know. I I hope I read it with enough interpretive prowess to help you to to stay engaged. I did my very best. But here's some new stuff for everybody. Let's think together a little bit about the ascension. We thought about it in chapter 1. We've talked about it in chapter two i 've emphasized it a little bit this morning, but let 's talk about the Ascension and why it 's so important it 's kind of fallen on hard times. You might not be guilty of this, but I know in my own Christian life and my Christian experience um, i haven 't thought a lot about the Ascension until more recent days, and church circles i 've run in haven 't placed much emphasis on the ascension uh, i 'll confess my sin. Um, For a long time, it kind of just seemed to me like ascension is when Jesus goes from earth to heaven. And that would be ascension, right? To to go up to a higher place. You're ascending. But the intent clearly in Acts chapter 2, based upon what Peter's connecting, is, oh yes, he went from earth to heaven. As the resurrected one, he went from earth to heaven and he's seated. Right hand of God talk. That's session talk. That's ruling and reigning talk, which is what was promised to David, that he would rule and reign, and he would rule and reign without end, eternally. So if we're talking about ascension, theologically, we don't just mean earth to heaven. We mean earth to heaven, right hand of God, king of kings, right? Lord of lords, the sovereign over all. So I I need to recapture that in my thinking. Just theologically, I I do want to keep talking about the life of Jesus. I want to keep talking and emphasizing the suffering of Jesus culminating on the cross, for sure. I want to keep talking and emphasizing the resurrection of Jesus, for sure. But there has been a missing piece sometimes in our emphasis, and that's he's ascended, seated at the right hand. Peter would want us to know, you know, that's a big deal. Let me ask you this question. Practically speaking, how, what, what's, what's the big deal? How could this help you in your Christian life? How can this help you maybe sleep better tonight? Because I think it can and should. If Jesus is on the throne as the sovereign who's in charge and in control as the King of kings and Lord of lords, here you go. You don't have to worry so much. And maybe I've learned to say so much, right? You still have obligations and so do I. We're not called to retreat and do nothing in life. We're called to engage. We're called to pray even for those who are lesser sovereigns. So we care. We worry in that sense. You know how I'm using the word. I don't mean it in a sinful way. But we're concerned. But if Jesus is the ascended, seated, in his session, to use old English, king, I can for sure worry less about the happenings in this broken world. He is seated. He is ruling and reigning. And he will return and make every wrong right. As sure as you saw him go, he will return. That's what was said in Acts chapter one. I need more ascension, reality, meditation, theology in my life because I think it really will help me sleep better at night and be less stressed and concerned about the here and now because Jesus is on the throne. I know we talk that way, but that's actually good ascension talk. It would be helpful. One more thing about ascension. Christians have talked this way and emphasized this for a long, long time. Peter, for sure, the inspired emphasis. But mature Christians after Peter have emphasized this because they've known how important theologically it is. And also as persecuted peoples at times, sometimes more severe than others. A lot on the line and it doesn't look like God is in charge and it doesn't look like Christ is on his throne. Christians have been emphasizing this whenever they talk about the work of Christ. And what I'm getting at is when you read the old creeds and confessions, it's a drumbeat. It's a drumbeat. Pretty fascinating to think about. Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Nicene Creed, he ascended into heaven, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. First Council of Constantinople, this is 381, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, from where he will come again, with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Next on my list. Athanasian Creed, 500. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where He will come to judge the living and the dead. Augsburg Confession, First Helvetic Confession, the Scots Confession, or how about the 1689 Confession? On the third day, He arose from the dead with the same body in which He suffered, with which He also ascended into heaven. And there... He sits at the right hand of his father doing what? Making intercession. He's there for us and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. You don't have to worry so much. Ascension's important. Maybe one reason Christians worry so much is because it's a doctrine that's fallen on hard times. Let's learn from Peter. Let's learn from other Christians who came after Peter. This actually really, 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 really matters. It's important. Theology does matter. Then, then the, the, the response to the sermon comes. I wish I would have included that ascension stuff in an earlier sermon, but I didn't. So you got it today. It's the clean up sermon day is what this is. Hopefully God uses it. Verse 37, now now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Obviously, figure of speech there. Um, they're convicted. They feel it. It's painful. Ah! It strikes at the very heart. And, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what, what shall we do? And Peter said to them in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the right response. That's the right thing to tell them to do. I probably mentioned it last week. If I didn't, I'll mention it today. Sometimes Peter's going to say it differently. Sometimes Paul's going to say it a lot like this, and sometimes he's going to say it differently. Because the idea is captured when you look at all of the text. How should we respond? Well, you should respond by admitting you're wrong. You should respond by repenting. You used to think Jesus was bad, now you know he's good. Or maybe you thought he was good, but you didn't think he was the Savior. You have a sin problem and things aren't okay between you and God. In other words, repent. And repentance is something that goes with faith. Sometimes he's just going to say, "Have trust in him, believe in him. But if you're believing, you're repenting. And if you're repenting, you're believing. The emphasis here isn't belief, but it's, it's assumed that they're believing in him. So you trust in Christ. And what do they do? They publicly identify with him through baptism. He's my savior. I want to be associated with him. He died for me. He's been raised for me, which is what baptism pictures, among other things. I've already been judged. I don't have to be judged again, which baptism pictures as a flood would. So that's what's happening. They're they're responding by, by, by trusting in Christ or he's telling them to do that. Then verse 39 says, oh, this is interesting. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Some of you seasoned saints who read that and think, that sounds like, that sounds like Abrahamic covenant talk. I think you're right. And he's explicitly going to connect what's happening to the Abrahamic covenant in chapter three of Acts. So we've got Davidic covenant fulfillment. Abrahamic covenant fulfillment. It's not only for the Jews, their salvation, but it's also Jews and Gentiles, those who are close, those who are far off, even to the ends of the earth. This is new covenant reality happening right here before our very eyes. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So there we see the sovereign emphasis. We're, we, we call upon him, but we also know that we call upon him because he's called upon us. He's called us, I should say. Verse 40 says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourselves by looking to Christ. And I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment. We talked earlier about things that are normative and not normative. These things are normal. These things we will see in the epistles... It starts here, this is how salvation works, Jew and Gentile. We're going to see it in Galatians, we'll see it in Romans. Verse 41 then says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Day of Pentecost, always celebrating the great harvest, the great physical harvest. Surely it's not a coincidence or an accident that we see Day of Pentecost Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people converted. There's a great harvest of souls that happens. We see the type. And now we see the fulfillment in anticipation. You ready for some new stuff? Some of you have just been waiting for the new stuff the whole time. I used to be a member of a church where the pastor would review for about 30 minutes every week. So, I promise I won't review it all next week okay and i won't do it for 30 minutes it's going to be all all new and all fresh but sometimes a review is necessary here we go the fruit they don't just get get out of hell insurance now uh, they actually have changed lives in other ways so verse 42 says and they devoted themselves so they didn't just scatter and go by their merry way and do whatever they were doing before And they devoted themselves, these who had believed in Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. First thing let's notice, they devoted themselves in like a religious sense. Sometimes even today we might say, oh, so-and-so, she's a devout fill-in-the-blank. We're using it in a religious sense. He's using it in a religious sense. From this point on, these new believers had a religious focus. And it's, it's persistent. It's ongoing. Even if there's conflict, even if there's tension, even if there's a distraction, is the concept wrapped up in the word. I checked. So they, they, they can't take their eyes off of. They, they, they their heart has been captured. And so these folks, these men and women and boys and girls have become devout. They've become devoted in ways that they weren't devoted before. In other words, their life changed. In other words, their priorities changed. Something happened to them. And he's acknowledging, Luke is pointing this out, that they didn't just go about their merry way. They're continuing on with something. Let's highlight all four of the things that are mentioned here. The first one is that they're devoted to the apostles teaching. The apostles teaching the King James translation translates it. The apostles doctrine and I'm going to, I'm going to use that one. I prefer that one. Um, it means the same thing. Both are good translations it just means teaching, but if it's formal formalized, then I like the word better. That's in the King James. It's doctrine doctrine just means teaching. Teaching means doctrine, but this is special. This is formal. This isn't anyone's teaching. This is the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. And so they're, they're religiously devoted to teaching. I don't think it's a mistake that this is first on the list. Now they're religiously committed, no matter what happens kind of thing, to a certain doctrine, to a certain teaching, which I think is worth bringing up because we hear, we hear things like doctrine divides, let's just live our lives, um, deeds not creeds, Kind of similar. And here, what's the first thing they're devoted to? They're devoted to doctrine, special teachings. I think it's good for us to be reminded of that. They need to be reminded of that because they need to know what's true and what's not true. What's true and good regarding Christ? What's true and good regarding salvation? What's true and good regarding how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament? Old Covenant and New Covenant? What's true and right regarding assurance? What's true and right regarding Jews and Gentiles? The apostles are helping them to think through what's right and true. It's healthy for them. This is why the apostle Paul will later talk about sound doctrine, healthy doctrine that makes you spiritually healthy. What's also interesting about that is the apostle Paul talks about behavior like morality and immorality and sexual immorality. And things like that. And those are things that are in conflict with sound doctrine. We won't take the time to go there. But that's in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10. So this this instruction helps them theologically to know what's true about Christ. And, and the work of Christ. And the work of Christ in the lives of others. How it all works. But also it relates to how you live your life. What's moral? What's immoral? Things that... Accord with sound doctrine, first Timothy chapter one, verse ten. Now I don't know about you. Probably not true for most of you, but it could be true for some of you or people you know. Why are they committed? Here's my question. Why are they committed to the apostles' doctrine? I thought they were Christians. Well, they are Christians. They're going to be called Christians in a little while in the book of Acts. So why aren't they committed to Christ's doctrines? Because they are if they're committed to the apostles' doctrines, they're committed to Christ's doctrines. And you say, how does that work? Well, most of you know how it works, but some of you might not. Apostles are formal, official representatives of someone else. And it's for good reason these 12 are called the apostles of Jesus Christ. So we don't make a distinction as thoughtful Christians between the apostles' doctrines and the Doctrines of Christ, because they're speaking with his unique apostolic, that's the loaded word, authority. So they don't need to call themselves apostolians or something like that. Um, No, they're, they're, they're Christians, but the apostles know things. They know things authoritatively, uniquely, so they're learning about Christianity from the apostles. Another reason why it's important to study the apostles' doctrine as they did religiously, is because something really radical is going to happen in Christianity. And that is that Christians are tremendously free. I don't know if you've thought much about that. They're not entirely free. There's Part of the Apostles' Doctrine, what's right about Christ and what's wrong about Christ... What's right about the way to think about Christ, in other words. Um, What's good behavior, what's bad behavior. I mean, that's all true. There's such a thing as right and wrong. That's part of the apostles' doctrine. But they need to know what is required and what isn't required because here's what's going to happen. Christians are free to make all kinds of decisions, all kinds of choices. There's huge freedom in biblical Christianity, so you need to know know where the boundaries are. And then you're free to do as you prayerfully please. Read the book of Galatians. So much of Galatians is about the freedom that needs to be fought for. And if you don't have great freedom, it's not real Christianity. Doesn't mean entire freedom. There are doctrines. But beyond the, let me put it this way, beyond the official apostles doctrines, you're free. Remember, one of the major, major, major reasons why we had a Protestant Reformation is to recapture the important biblical doctrine of freedom. We're not ever under everyone's religious control to follow their doctrines. We need to know what the apostles' doctrines are. And thankfully, we have them inscripturated for us. So it's important that they know what's right and wrong, not because they're going to be told everything, but because they need to know the important things so that they can then enjoy Christian freedom. Okay, we probably should move on. Yes, it's true. You can be doctrinaire. You can be arrogant. You can be prideful. Knowledge can lead to pride. Um, but it's a false choice. If you don't know what's true about Jesus, and we're so far from being doctrinaire, it's not even funny uh, in evangelicalism. Um, I, I, I welcome that maybe <laughs> when we get to that place. But I digress. Okay, first thing, apostles' doctrine. They, they've got to know what's right. They've got to know what's not right. They have to know what's true, what's not true, how to live for the glory of Christ. That's something they're religiously committed to. There's definitely a carryover, even beyond Acts, when it comes to that. The second thing they're religiously devoted to, if you notice there, is fellowship. They're religiously devoted to Christian fellowship. And the idea is, with fellowship, you're together together. You share a positive relationship together. You might do things together, but now we're getting ahead of ourselves. First and foremost, if you have fellowship with someone, you like each other, um, you love each other. Better yet, you've got something great in common that creates a bond between you. Uh, it's a positive relationship. Um, you're together, not together as cellmates, where you could hate each other. You 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 want to be together. That reconciliation is taking place if you have fellowship. The reason I'm using that definition is because in 1 John, John talks about this. He he says, you know, we want to have fellowship with you, other believers. But if you have fellowship with us, you should know we have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So we have a good, positive, reconciled relationship with God. We like him and he likes us because of the work of Jesus, if you will. And based upon that closeness together, we like each other. In other other words, love, relationship, positive. Then there can be this, that's the vertical one. There can be the horizontal one. So the new Christians, young Christians, they're loving each other. They want to spend time together. They want to be together. They're close. There's a unique, special kind of love. First John would even say, it's a sign that you're a Christian that you have this fellowship. You have a, a love for other Christians. Maybe you didn't love those people before, but now you have something uniquely in common, the most important thing that will last forever. And so now there is this fellowship, and they're purposeful about it. They're devoted, religiously devoted, to fostering this special kind of relationship. Now, if we go outside of that kind of definition of fellowship, together, positive, friendly, reconciled, we could go to a text like Philippians chapter 1, where it's translated partnership. Same Greek word, but it's translated partnership. And I think we would want to go there uh, eventually as well. If we have devoted fellowship, we not only are together and have something in common and we like each other, we also are partnering together. And in Philippians, and I think it would be a similar idea, we're partnering to promote the gospel and we're partnering to defend the gospel which would fit our context, and we have to know the apostles' doctrine, which would be an explanation of the gospel and what it is and what it isn't. We've got to be committed to that, and that will foster the fellowship. That will promote the fellowship. It will help the fellowship. It will strengthen the fellowship. It will enhance the fellowship because now we know more about Jesus and what a great Savior He is. We know more about our own guilt and misery before Christ. We know more about this great grace that we have experienced in Christ The fellowship is just strengthened and enhanced. And you know what this is like if you've been a Christian very long and you're with other Christians learning important, vital things together. It it strengthens the positive relationship. Fellowship. Think with me, if you would, about shared experiences, commonalities outside of the church and how important they are. And how powerful they are. And I would suggest to you that it's evidence that God made us and the world that way. I'm on a certain team. I belong to a certain club. I go to a certain school. I'm a fan of a certain team. And the list goes on and there's just something about it. You know, if somebody has the same interest as me or they've had, they they enjoy the same kind of cuisine, same kind of food, been to the same kind of special restaurant, we've watched the same movie and it's our favorite movie and we've seen it 20 times or whatever it is, there's this, there's, there's, it's fellowship. There's something special. You might even do things for that person that you wouldn't do for other people. It's this special kind of thing. I think it's great. But I think it actually gives evidence of the fact that that's how God made us. And actually, the, ultimately, that's to show itself and it's to express itself ultimately here in the body of believers. We've got something special. I would do things for you that I wouldn't do for other people. We, we have a special shared experience. Oh, and by the way, the deeper we go in it and the broader we go in it, the more special it is. And it's irreplaceable. It's, it's a grand, great awesome kind of thing i have nothing in common with a person but i have the most important thing in common with them and so it's amazing what you end up doing for them or you'd be willing to do it's a sweet sweet kind of thing they're devoted to fellowship being together shared experiences now let's do number three and four the next one on our list, they're devoted to, they're committed to, ongoingly, to the breaking of bread. What does that mean? Well, I just heard of this last week. I was watching a movie maybe two weeks ago. And this is a non-religious context. Uh, people talked about there was a conflict and now that there's not a conflict anymore. And they said, you know what? We're going to break bread together. And I knew what they meant. Most of you would know what they meant. We're we're going to we're going to share a special experience that you normally would share with family members, with people you're close to. Let's break bread together. There's something there's something special about it. It's not something you do with enemies. At least not something you do with enjoyment. Is it that? Did they share meals together? Actually, the answer is yes. And we'll even see it in our text and later. They shared meals together. Something they did. And it would make sense if they loved each other in a unique, special way. Let's spend time together and even do familial kinds of things. But you know where I'm going next is. Or, or is it communion? Is it the Lord's Supper like we're celebrating today? It's a hard choice. It's a hard choice because Luke uses it for both In Luke chapter 24, he's talking about sharing a meal together. And in chapter 22, it's Lord's Supper. So which one is it here? The early church prioritized the Lord's Supper, that's for sure. Is that what's involved here? Maybe. I wouldn't die on the hill. Not sure. I've talked to people who say, we know we should have communion every week because of Acts chapter 2. And I say, well, maybe, but you might be getting more than you're asking for because in verse 46 it says day by day. It's not week by week. They're breaking bread day by day. So it's not weekly, this thing we're talking about here. Now, maybe we should do it every week. I could pastor a church that celebrated the Lord's Supper every week. Sometimes I think we should. Sometimes I think we shouldn't. But I do know that Acts chapter 2 is not a slam dunk. So I at least want to have some humility humility about it. There's something transitioning. There's something that's not even normal normative here. Other people on the other extreme, and I don't mean extreme in a bad sense, but I just want to use, okay, it has to be every week. Well, on the other side of the spectrum, others, thoughtful theologians would say, well, If the Lord's Supper replaces, what, Passover, how often was Passover celebrated? Once a year. See, this is why Christians have debated this. Thoughtful, well-meaning, godly, Bible-saturated Christians. Which one is it? Which one is it? John Knox who was very serious and sober-minded and committed to the significance of the Lord's Supper, in 1556, John Knox, in the Order of Geneva, advocated monthly communion. Uh, In the first book of discipline adopted by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1562, they said quarterly communion. And if you're in a rural area, why do they always get shortchanged? I don't know. Twice a year. By the 18th century, the Scottish practice is annually. I'm not saying those are right. I'm not saying those are wrong. But they're serious-minded people who prioritize the Lord's Supper. And there's a lot of difference. There's a lot of difference. And by the time we get to 1 Corinthians... We do know that the Lord's Supper is not a house to house kind of thing. It's a corporate thing. It's when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. Have I gotten to five times yet? When you come together. So even if this is the Lord's Supper, it definitely changes when we get to the prescriptive. Well, I hope I've just given you enough to talk about today when you break bread. Number four, they're committed to the prayers. They're committed to the prayers. What are the prayers? Well, he doesn't tell us what the prayers are. But they're committed to the prayers. Pastoral prayers. Something modeled after the Lord's Prayer. Uh... But what we do know, let's not get hung up on that. They're, they're praying. They're depending upon God. They're, they're, they're obeying God. They're depending upon God. They're, they're, they're acknowledging God's greatness and His, His goodness and His power and His generosity and His mercy. They're confessing their sins to one another. That's part of prayer. They're thanking God, praising God, worshiping God because of who He is and what He's done. That's part of prayer. They're praying for one another. That's part of prayer. I would just say they're praying. Now maybe they're doing some formalized the prayers, but I don't know what they are. But they're definitely praying, praying through the Psalms perhaps, praying something modeled after the Lord's Prayer perhaps, maybe all of these things. But let's do notice this, and this doesn't change in the life of the church when we move past descriptive to prescriptive. We are people that express our dependence upon God and our gratitude to God by speaking to God in light of what He's done for us. And they're doing that in the early church. Then 43 says, and awe. You can translate it literally if you'd like to. Fear. There's this holy reverence. And awe came over every soul. So some of them, if they were the ones who sang, ah, they're drunk. They've had a change of heart. Now their mouths are wide open. They're in awe what God has done. These people didn't have things in common before. And now they have Christ in common. And look, it's changing their lives. They're in awe. They're dumbfounded, I might say. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So notice everyone is in awe and the apostles are doing signs and wonders which makes sense because they have to have their teaching authenticated. They have to have their teaching accompanied that they're not just local yahoos making things up. It's accompanied by something supernatural and special, authenticating. Verse 44 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. How about that? We had all these differences and now given the fact that we have one Savior... We've got radical, amazing commonality. We believe the same things about Jesus and the apostles' doctrine helped us with that. We believe the same things about salvation. We believe the same things about how the Old and New Testament relate and so far as we understand it today because we're getting the apostles' doctrine and we're together and we're working these things through and we're praying for each other. They have all things. Didn't it say that? They had all things in common. And here's where I do like to 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 push and prod just a little bit. They have all things in common that they need to have in common. They don't have all things in common. I don't think that for a second. I don't think that all of a sudden, instantly, they got zapped and had the same IQs. And they all became the same height. And they all weighed the same. And they had the same hairstyles. And they all became altos. Or whatever it is. Now, I'm just being ridiculous because... I just want to make the point, what does he mean by all things? All the things that would matter. All the things. (laughs) Doesn't mean they didn't have differences. Doesn't mean they didn't come from different places. Doesn't, Doesn't mean they didn't have different jobs. But if I'm reading that in the greater context, all the things that would really matter in the Christian life, they had in common. They loved each other. They loved God. They'd experienced God's love. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Remarkable. What's happening? Socialism? No, but this is the proof text. Literally, I looked it up. This is what socialists use. Mandated, you got to get rid of all of your stuff. You can make the Bible say anything if you turn your brain off. And this won't be normative as we work our way through the gospel account. It's describing what happened. It's descri- I, I, I love people who are believers. And if they have a need, what do I do? I do whatever it takes to make sure their need is met. That's what's happening here. This is great Christian love. Let's not let it be robbed by someone with a political ideology looking for Bible verses to try to dupe gullible Christians. This is special This is a special work of the Spirit of God. This is beautiful. This is Christian love, in other words, and we see Christian love on display. 46 says, let's wrap this up. 46 says, and day by day. This is, this is their norm. Attending the temple together. Oh, mark that in your mind. Remember John Stott. Transition. That's not going to last. That's definitely not going to last. The Lord is going to make sure it doesn't last. Remember Matthew 24 and 25? He's going to destroy the temple. And one way to get people to stop going to the temple is to not have a temple. Transition. It's what they know. It's been the norm. So they're just doing the norm. It seems good. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. See, it's the eating kind. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Another generality, because they don't have favor with all the people because some of the people are going to want to kill them. But generally speaking, people are encouraged and pleased with them, the way they're living, the way they're conducting themselves. And the Lord... What a great way to end. One of my favorite chapter endings in all of the Bible. How did all of this happen? not through contrived church growth methodology and techniques. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a great, great way to make sure we understand how it was that all of these amazing and miraculous things were happening, including the new birth. The Lord does it. The Lord does it, the Lord does it, the Lord does it. He used the preaching, yes, but the Lord does it. He used the people's lives, yes, but the Lord is the one who does it, and we should always remember that. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time in Acts chapter 2. Thank you for the saints that have gone before us like these ones we're learning about, and thank you for others who would come after them. Help us to, as it's been said, to, to see clearly even more clearly because of those who've gone before us. We are excited to learn. We're excited to learn what you've done in in the past, and we're excited to know that you are still working in this world, using people like us for the glory of Christ. As we now eat and drink in remembrance of Christ, may it be a supernatural help to us as we consider what it is to be able to have a Savior that we can rest in and trust in. In his name we pray, amen.